summertime is right around the corner, Reed. So when you think of summertime, what is the number one beverage you think about? Well, I'm from the South, so I'm going to say iced tea. Iced tea is a good one. Another one that's a big contender, though, is lemonade. And you put them together and they're an Arnold Palmer, right? Yeah, Arnold Palmer, my favorite. I was listening to this podcast and they were talking about lemonade and they brought up pink lemonade. Do you like pink lemonade or regular lemonade? Which one's your preference? I'm probably more of a traditionalist and just stick with the actual lemonade, but I want like the real lemonade. So here's the thing. The only difference between pink lemonade and regular lemonade is that it's dyed pink. I've never heard of putting a pink lemonade in with an iced tea to create like a really muddy looking Arnold Palmer. Well, I think that would actually technically be a Nancy Lopez. Welcome to Touchpoint a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 329. That is Chris Boyer. I am Reed Smith. Excuse me while I have a sip of my lemonade here. Get freshening my palate here. Yeah. Yeah. Having a Nancy Lopez. (laughs) Uh, I actually have a Topo Chico. Maybe that's my recommendation for the day. But um, I don't know. We'll get get to that later. Before we do, though, let's talk a little bit about today's episode. Excited to be back uh, after HMPS. Uh, It was good to see everybody in Austin. It was a good crowd. It was was nice. I hate... You were a little under the weather and weren't able to make it down. But, um, you know, honestly, I don't know how to compare. People keep asking me, you know, was it a big crowd? I, I think so. I don't – it's so weird. Uh, I don't remember, to be perfectly honest. But but it was nice. It was a good crowd. Saw tons of folks and uh, got to spend some time with uh, some of our partners and some other folks in the industry. Had some really nice nice folks come up and comment. And you recorded a good conversation there, too. So thanks for doing that. I. I did. I did. So sad. I have a little bit of FOMO that that I didn't get to go. But hey, at least I'm back now. My voice is pretty much back to normal. So we're back in the podcasting driver's seat now. Speaking of your voice, I did have someone say to me after looking at me a little bit strange for a minute, they're like, it's just weird to see your face. Because <laughs> I've heard your voice for so long. I was like, okay. I don't know if that was a compliment. I'm not really sure now that I look back on it, <laughs> see my face. But anyway, let's do this. Let's jump into the episode. But before we do, a uh, quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health, touchpoint.health. You can go there, the TPS report. You'll notice lists up in the top navigation, name, email address. And what that will get you is one email, exactly one email each Monday with five articles to start your week. That's it. Hopefully a little value add, something to uh, get things going. So we'll pause here for a second, let you do that. Again, touchpoint.health, and we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. 
Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. All right. Today's topic is very top of mind for those of us in the digital space and healthcare. And it's about web tracking for hospitals and health systems, which is currently facing Mm. some significant challenges. Is that fair to say, Reed? Yes, it is. It is. Uh, We just thought we were past it with the Facebook pixel, but no. Lots of stuff going on. We touched about this briefly before, but it might be worth for us to kind of go back to to outline what's going on. And and you're right, Reed. It it began – actually, it began a number of years ago. But I think what really kind of set the wheels in motion of where we're at today is last summer – there was that publication in Stat News about the Facebook Metapixel compromising information and sharing information with Facebook. And if you recall, we talked about it back then as well. Uh, we did a really great podcast called The Problem with the Pixel. really suggest you go back and give a listen to because that kind of went through like the importance of the Pixel and Pixel tracking. And that, from last summer actually caused a number of other things to occur. And in particular, it kind of drove HHS, or the Department of Health and Human Services, and Office of Civil Rights, also abbreviated as OCR, to kind of look at how hospitals and health systems are using online tracking in general. And they came out with some guidance in December, which basically turned our whole industry on end. Yeah, OCR. I mean, I liken this a little bit to when Lance Armstrong came back in 2009. If he would have just stayed retired, he would still be the seven-time Tour de France champion. But instead, he came back and started everything up. So, you know, everything got stirred up here, and now all of a sudden we can't use analytics anymore. So Let's revisit that, right? So we found a great article from Holland and Knight, which actually happens to be a legal firm, a technical legal firm. It gives a great overview. That article, which we'll link to in the show notes, is entitled HHS Offers HIPAA Guidance on Online Tracking Technologies. They talk a little bit about HSS and the OCR that you just mentioned. For frame of reference, they're the ones that enforce HIPAA, right? Uh, and so they issued this bulletin on third-party cookies, pixels, tracking technology, you know, et cetera. And the bulletin sets expectations for websites and mobile apps, making them subject to HIPAA, right? So this includes hospitals, physician groups, insurance plans, pharmacies, uh, what we would consider covered entities and those business associates. And so we'll get into this idea of a BAA probably here in just a little bit, but that's really what it what it encompasses are covered entities, as we call it. The importance of us to uh, preserve and 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 respect HIPAA and and how HIPAA is used within our digital space is significant. One of the major things that kind of came out some clarity around this guidance was that that they are now including IP addresses as being something that is covered by a HIPAA-protected entity, right? It's one of the HIPAA data classes that we need to ensure that we're, um, we're being compliant with. And that's something that's a little bit different. 
than what we've been understanding before. It's an interesting, and I think maybe a little bit of a stretch, but it doesn't really matter what I think, right? But it's this idea that if you visited a website and looked at a piece of content on the web, on a website around a service or a condition at a hospital, let's say, so something about oncology or maybe a sleep study or something like that, because we can track and you know collect your IP address, they potentially c- connect you, the searcher, to a uh, piece of information around a disease or disease state. Therefore, then that makes that IP address PII, I guess. So again, I, it seems like a little much to me, but just kind of is what it is. But I think the the intention of this is really good in that we as purveyors of the digital landscape within health systems, we we do need to ensure that we're creating a safe, protected environment with patient data. And in fact, this article indicates that healthcare companies should perform a risk-based assessment of their use of third-party tracking technologies to determine if there's any potential of risk or breach, so to speak. That requires us to work very closely with privacy and security departments to kind of assess and mitigate ongoing risks. And the article outlines some some ways, some suggested ways that organizations could do that. So, Reed, why don't we kind of cover those? Third-party tracking. So anything on the website that is connected to, you know, tracking activity is really up for grabs at this point. And I think that's what's the crazy part here. Because, again, we'll get to this in a minute, but it's like, you know, then how do you ultimately understand what's happening or, you know. Uh, the idea is to inventory all current third-party tracking activity on all your websites and apps. That's a pretty significant thing to do. But then, you know, take that inventory and assess it against the bulletin's guidance. And that could lead you to some very interesting places, like, for example, removing tracking technologies or limiting their placement on certain sensitive pages. Which is like, where do you stop? You know, and again, I'll stop with the color commentary here in a minute. They also talk about considering changes to technology used or configurations to reduce information provided to third-party trackers. So this is a little bit of a kind of intermediary step. You know, how do you put up a little bit of a of a of a gate uh, in between to keep you know some of this information from flowing back across? Which again, I think the spirit of this is that we don't want this information compromised by a third-party company. So again, to be safe, one of the suggestions, it, it really kind of centers around technology considerations aside, working with vendors that, uh, that uh, have compliant BAA agreements with us, I think is an underlying theme here, or obtaining HIPAA valid patient authorizations in advance of people using your website are two of the major outcomes that have to come from this. Yeah, and I think for most people, if they could just get Google to sign BAA, then a lot of this goes away. And then finally, they talk about evaluation and even improving the governance procedures over new websites, mobile apps, you know, for, for compliance purposes. So, yeah, I mean, having people from those teams involved in, in kind of what you're doing, I think is where we'll ultimately find ourselves. We, we talked a lot about digital bleeding other departments was, you know, conversely, these other departments coming into what we're doing. So I think that's going to be certainly important. But what's happening now, Reed, is that because of this, there are a lot of hospitals and health systems are 
realizing they, the way they do analytics today using free tools like Google Analytics is not uh, b- because Google will not sign that BAA with us. That in general, the, the common theme is to just remove Google products entirely from our tool set. And this kind of leaves us at, a, at a, a point where some organizations are considering abandoning analytics platforms entirely, if you can believe that. Yeah, I mean, why track anything? It's not that important. I think that part of it is, is because the replacement analytics platforms with BAAs, we don't have familiarity with them. And so in the short term, there is this kind of move to move to a place where there's no analytics tracking at all. I think it's important for us to talk about analytics. And while you know, I never thought in my ex- experience as our digital professional in healthcare that we'd actually be in a, in, a, in a place where we're doing a podcast about is analytics worth it or not. After the break, we're going <laughs> to come back and talk a little bit about data strategy and analytics and kind of get into the importance of developing a discipline around this. But we'll do that right after this pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Okay, so before the break, we talked a little bit about the landscape, you know, how we got how we got here, right? And again, not to be confused with, is this a good idea or not? Uh, that's not really the point. The point is, is like, this is what's happening. So how do we operate inside this new environment? Right? And again, I think, Broadly speaking, um, you know, we all we all want this. We want privacy, and we want to be able to you know do what's right for the patients. Now, what does that mean? You know, this is another great example of technology outpacing the law a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, that's fine, but I don't I don't know how this how this works exactly now. So we're going to jump in now and talk a little bit about what's the plan. You know, how do you think about analytics now, and, and where do you go with that? Yeah, and so first let's talk about the differences between a data strategy and an analytics roadmap. Sometimes we use those terms interchangeably. Data privacy is very important, and a data strategy is important, but analytics, and particularly things like you know website analytics and, and all of those things are also very important, but they're distinctly different. So we found an article that kind of breaks down data strategy versus analytics roadmap. And it's actually entitled, What's the Difference? So let's start by talking about, you know, data strategy. So we're going to talk about the difference in these things. So what what are they? You know, data strategy, an initial high-level look at the organization's objectives, investing in analytics. A data strategy helps businesses get, uh, you know, an understanding of how to leverage data and what sort of opportunities it, it could uh, provide. And there are a number of components here that are important to have as part of a data strategy. So let's let's kind of talk through them. I think they're pretty straightforward. First of all, 
you need to include the following opportunities that can be enabled by data and analytics. What is the benefit um, having a data and analytics strategy? What can you learn from your organization? Also, what data content is needed to help meet those opportunities? Right. Again, what we're doing is we're kind of defining at a very high level. What are some of the other components, Reed? Well, I mean, you know, how good is it? You know, the quality, performance, um, roles, responsibility, ownership, you know, who, who's going to handle what? What are they going to do? You know, and then even, you know, data uh, migration and integration. So where, where does it live? Gosh, we've been having a lot of conversations around like, you know, data lakes and things like that. But where does it go and who's in charge of it? How good is it? You know, all those types of things. And all of these cumulatively give give us as an organization a better a better picture of what we want out of our investment in data and analytics. This is pretty pretty straightforward, right? We, I think we all understand we need data and we need to do analytics on that data. But ultimately, what we're looking at is we we need to create a data strategy to help kind of help us map against what our business needs are. And the article points out that a lot of industries, regardless of their type of industry or their size or whatever, they typically want to know the same thing, which is learn why things are happening in order to optimize how those things work. Mm -hmm. That's really the kind of the thrust of the major data strategy that you have as an organization. But that's a little bit different than an analytics roadmap, Reed. What is an analytics roadmap? Yeah, so here in the article, they talk about it being something that's designed to translate the data strategy into the plan of action, right? So something that outlines how to implement the strategy's key initiatives. You know, framework is a keyword they're using in here. Um, so how do you evaluate the value of each strategic initiative as well as constraints and things like that? So you don't end up you know, wasting a bunch of time, resources, energy, you know, on things that, that don't have material value. That is so true. And at a very practical level, right, a roadmap considers all of the different activities day-to-day that you need to bring your data strategy to life. Key milestones, dependencies, other things to keep in mind. The roadmap is kind of the path that you're going to get there to actually meet your data strategy. They've got a, a good example in here where they're talking about you know, your data strategy may be, you know, quote-unquote, we want to build internal capability. So you have a goal, but you haven't outlined how you're going to get there. Your analytics roadmap would then determine what skills you need, what kind of people you want to hire, time frame, et cetera, you know, breaking down goals into actionable activities. Bite-sized activities, as they call them. And mm-hmm. then one of the most important components of your analytics roadmap, they say, is to determine the phases of your activities. You know, a roadmap is just that. It's like a kind of a, a, a way to get there, a path to get there. You may have a data strategy that says, I'm going to be launching a new in- website environment, and I want to use uh, data to improve the way the the websites perform long-term. Your roadmap is, what do we have to have in place when we launch a new website? What data are we going to be measuring? How are we going to be measuring it, et cetera? And then outline the steps to kind of get there, right? That gives you the the way to kind of go down the path down that road. I wonder, though, how many of us actually have a data strategy. An analytics roadmap may be something along those lines, kind of living on its own, but I'm wondering... You know, have we really sat down and, you know, architected a, a digital strategy? 
You know, I think that's a good point. And when we talk about a data strategy, a lot of times at health systems, the data strategy is pretty significant because there's, there's a lot of data that we collect. And not to say that we're exposing this data outside of the organization, but internally, there's data we collect on every encounter we have with patients and data we collect on length of stays. I mean, in the industry, we measure a lot of things. And when we talk about website analytics, it often sits outside of this kind of data strategy, Read yeah. Website analytics is a little bit different. Why don't we take a brief pause here, and then when we come back, we talk a little bit about how to create an analytics strategy that can map to your larger data strategy, the one that's being defined by maybe IT and clinical and others. This is sort of the new world that we live in, and it really can help us inform a website analytics approach and kind of reinforce the importance of maintaining website analytics. Even as we move away from free tools into other types of tools, this still is an important part of what we need to do. And we'll do that right after this break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Now let's talk a little bit, Reed, about creating an analytics strategy. We were talking about data and analytics and the differences between the two, and that this is much broader than just website analytics or web tracking. An analytics strategy for an organization is pretty big. And we found an article called How to Create an Analytics Strategy that happens to be by a company that that's what they specialize in. But they kind of outline a couple of steps that organizations typically follow when they're creating this strategy. Let's go through those. First one they call out is, is people. So who are the stakeholders? Ideally, they say it should be a cross-functional group, which uh, I would tend to agree with. Uh, And you want differing interests. And I think having a point of view from different parts of the organization is only going to make, you know, the the, the end product that much much better, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's think about this like cross-functional group, right? First of all, at many organizations, there probably is a centralized analytics team. And they typically sit in the IT department. They tend to be seen as the people that are the analytics czars of the organization, right? They're typically software data engineering people that create data strategy and form all the different different business needs of data that's across the organization. Does everybody have this? I'm looking through you know, this idea of a centralized analytics team, for example. Maybe it's just we don't call it the same thing. You know what I mean? So it's just it's hard to... Kind of go apples to apples, I guess, maybe with some of this. Well, and probably because what you're ta- what you're thinking about is sort of a decentralized business analytics. And there's a lot of those people across the organization, right? Like we are the marketing analytics teams. We typically tend to be those people in our roles. But there's people in finance, supply chain, uh, people in clinical operations. There's sort of this decentralized business analytics team as well that should be part of this larger ecosystem of a data strategy a few others they call it in here business leaders so obviously they can help align uh, to strategy you know organization strategy 
they can come with tons of use cases, capabilities, you know, prioritization relative to, you know, projects or features or functionality, things like that. The customers themselves, so the users that can provide some insight on how they'll actually consume and use the data. I think that's a really important one, honestly. I mean, it's the same reason we go talk to patients to understand the patient journey and that kind of thing, you know, understand the user. That's right. And understand how we use that data and who needs to see that data, right? All the different consumers across the organization that may be wanting a report of this or a report of that. Step two, they outline, is, is a process to perform uh, initial discovery. Uncover your current way that you're tracking data and, and analysis and create a discovery session that's over these multiple people. Like you were just talking about developing a customer journey, there's a lot of people that are collecting data and analytics over that entire journey, um, making sure they're all together and finding ways where that data can, can kind of connect with one another. It, it helps you define where there might be some data gaps or might, there might be some opportunities to improve data security along the way. So understanding what process exists uh, within the organization today, um, you know, what are the use cases, current state you know, what data assets do you have? Technology do you have, et cetera? Um, uh, you know, is, is kind of a good place to, to start with that documentation. Which leads to step three, which is determining your analytics operating model, right? There are three different common models that are used at the organization. And this is probably why you were asking before, is there a centralized team? The three models are typically you're decentralized, where each business unit and functional areas operate with autonomy, and they maintain their own standards. That's more times than not, a lot of health systems are like that. There's a federated model where a central team provides a single point of control, but there's many users across the business unit. And then there's a completely centralized model where there's just one team doing this across the entire operations. In my experience working for hospitals and health systems, you usually are either decentralized or federated. That's probably why you haven't seen a centralized, yeah. you know, data. Yeah, that's probably right. I mean, I think, you know, you see some functionality centralized, but th- there is somewhat of a decentralized approach relative to, to analytics for sure. Four step they call out is technology, uh, the tools of the trade, as they say. Uh, technology decisions are critical to the success of an analytics program. The decision drives everything from cost to final analysis and choosing the right tool doesn't have buy-in across the board will prevent, you know, a successful analytics strategy. So I agree. I agree with that. Like you, you really need, you don't need to be constantly trying to twist people's arms. And this, again, if you align it to like the recommendations around HS, HSS guidance, we're following the same tool, tool here, right? The, assessing your technology to ensure that you're meeting your needs is kind of fits into this. The last is around, and this is why, Often, uh, why some organizations are right now considering no analytics as a move forward path is your culture of data literacy. When you have to create a sustainable data culture, and so part of that is is like why aren't data or website analytics important to your organization? It's because you may not have established a sustainable data culture within your organization. And so they offer some examples of ways that you can do that. They first say, lead by example. Though, If you're a data owner, 
and you're using data to drive decision-making, you need to start sharing that. So I mentioned to you, like if you're using website analytics to understand how to optimize your, your online presence, a lot of that stuff is done behind the scenes. It's like talking developers, talking to their internal digital people and looking at optimizations, et cetera. You often want to bring that forward and expose that to other people, particularly if you have IT data people sharing with them that you're using this data to optimize the journey to make the experience much better. Another thing they say, though, Reed, is to measure what matters. What does that mean? Well, <clears throat> that, to measure what matters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But really, in I think the word they use here, which is uh, which is great, is attentionality, right? So... Uh, you know, be very uh, cognizant of what you're trying to do and be intentional about, you know, that measurement and that effort and the energy put into it. So you can get lost, you know, in, in analytics sometimes and noodle array, you know, come with all kinds of stuff that's not particularly important, right? So being intentional about that, being upfront about the goal setting and things like that is, is really important. And make sure then, once you once you measure what matters, this is really where you can, you, it helps you to understand, hey, wait, yeah, we don't really don't need to have a platform that shares this third-party data with Google. That's not benefiting us, right? But we do want to measure things like, oh, how, are, how is the site performing in an anonymized way so we can actually improve your website, right, et cetera. Making data accessible is another point they say, right? Making sure that you're using data that people can understand, making sure it's aligned on the KPIs within your organization. That's an important part here too. Make your data, measure what matters, and make sure that data is understandable by others. The understandable by others part is an interesting one because it doesn't matter how cool any of this is, right? If it if if the perception is is that you know I don't know what this means or it's not easy to use or what, whatever it is, um, it's going to you know deteriorate pretty fast. They have some other examples here too, right? About creating an internal user group that works and evangelizes. I think this is very like your data and analytics people on your on the IT side could be very much evangelists. People uh, that work in the digital health space they could be part of this as well. And then lastly, train from within. Those are the kind of the examples that they have. But ultimately, Reed, what we're leading to is the fact that a data and analytics strategy is important for your organization. And there are ways you could do this, albeit you may have to move away from free tools nowadays when we're talking about web tracking. But you shouldn't abandon a, a strategy around analytics. There's a lot of value that you can have. But it's incumbent upon you as a data leader within your organization to trumpet the value of analytics and why it matters. I think if you can get to this idea of why it matters and, and, you know, really evangelize that across your organization and tie this into, you know, this is not about marketing. If you can tie this into business objectives and that kind of thing, that's going to put you in a place where you're having a very different conversation than, you know, the elementary nature of, you know, web visits and stuff like that that's not particularly meaningful. This kind of speaks to you, Reed, the fact that why now more than ever, we cannot move away from analytics. We need to actually lean in on developing an analytics practice and be a little bit more uh, intentional is the word, right? That, that could bring us forward. Right. So, yeah. Okay. With that, why don't we take one last break and then we'll be back to close out the show.
All right, good conversation. Uh, analytics, something that we've you know talked about and talked around uh, for some years, is certainly very, very important to what we do on a daily basis. And so, we'd love to hear feedback, comments, thoughts around how you're handling uh, these OCR rulings and insights, and you know, kind of where you're going from here. So, reach out to us. LinkedIn is a great place to do that. Uh, but certainly, would love to love to hear from you. The TPS report we mentioned at the top of the show, touchpoint.health is the website where you can go sign up. Uh, in addition to those five articles to start your week, there's also links to upcoming conferences. Chris, I know we'll have a few in the fall. We've got ShishMed in September, HCIC, I think, in November. Uh, I've got the Thomson Reuters uh, Digital Health 2023 uh, in mid-May out in San Diego. So if anybody's headed to that, let me know. I uh, would, would love to hear from you. So. But anyway, sign up for the TPS report. We'd certainly appreciate that. And uh, it's a great way to kick off your week. All right. Recommendations. What do you got today? Reed, I'm going to recommend something that is streaming on Amazon's Freebie. Have you heard of Freebie? Yeah, I have. I have heard of that. That's their new free service where you can watch uh, different types of programming. It's a free streaming service. You don't have to be an Amazon Prime member. You do get advertising as you go, as you watch it. Um, it's kind of similar to like a Pluto TV or Roku TV or what have you. Uh, you can also, if you're an Amazon Prime member and you have Prime Video, you can actually see Freebie within, embedded within that application or the way you see things that way. But there's a show that was released on Amazon Freebie that my wife and I, while we were both sick over the last couple of weeks, we watched. And it's a really amazing show called Jury Duty. Have you heard about this? Mm. No, I have not. It's eight episode series. And basically what it is, it starts off by saying that, you know, talking about that this is a documentary about what it's like to be part of a jury. It's called jury duty, right? And it will follow everybody within the jury and like have unfettered access to kind of videoing them and keep, you know, as they go through a, a, an entire legal case in court capturing their 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 conversations throughout the entire thing. But here's the twist read. It actually is not a real court case. And in fact, everybody that's involved in the court case, the judge, the defendants, the lawyers, and 11 out of the 12 jurors are all actors. <laughs> and they bring in one person that is not an actor and it's actually filming how he reacts to these different actors. And it becomes so outlandish, the things that happen oh, wow. during this, I think it's like a two-week period of time. Some of the actors, there's actually a very well-known actor that's that actually was called for jury duty that's on the jury. James Marsden, who is a, a famous actor, he's been in like X-Men and The Notebook and all these different things. The guy who's not an actor recognizes them as they're waiting to be called on for jury duty. And he goes, hey, wait, I know you. You were in the X-Men. And they were starting to talk, whatever. And, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to get out of jury duty. I'm too popular. People don't want attention about that. And of course, because it's a a dramatization, right? It's not a real story. He does get selected. And so James Marsden tries actively to try to get himself out of being in jury duty, including calling fake paparazzi to show up at the, uh, Oh boy. 
the courthouse. And then really the intention here is you're watching this person who's not an actor react to all of this. It's almost like the office in a jury setting. I'm telling you, this thing was so hilarious and so funny. And then at the very end of the show, you know, they reveal to the uh, in, the individual that they were all actors. And it was, it's just a tremendously funny show. I would recommend it for anybody who likes The Office, Parks and Rec, any of the kind of humor. The shows themselves are about 35 minutes long. There's eight episodes. It is so funny to watch and it just will crack you up. And it's also a really interesting perspective on that individual who's not an actor, how he reacts to all of this. It's just phenomenal. And it's called Jury Duty. It's on Amazon Freebie. Highly recommend it. Love it. Make a note here. So I uh, am going to recommend Topo Chico. I mentioned early in the show, uh, drinking one, like it. Got to be in a glass bottle, though. Got to go glass bottle route. I mean, you can get the plastic ones usually when you stop at a gas station or something like that. It's fine. And uh, I do like the lime. I do like the lime ones, yes. But really just the original mineral water glass bottle. Um, I don't know. It makes, makes it feel special. You know, like you're getting a little, little treat in the day. So uh, as we're getting up to summer, people are going to be outside. That's, uh, that's a good one to, to hone in on. So there you I go. love Topo Chico. It's one of, the, one of my most favorite my second most favorite uh, seltzer water is next to Polar Water, which I recommended many years ago. Yes. But uh, I love it. And in the glass bottle, that is, that's clutch right there, if you can do that's that. That's right. Totally agree. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Touchpoint. For Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.